This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. I have learned to think, you know what? I, I'll be proud of myself. I don't need someone else to be proud of me. Um, I'll do the best I can. And my success will be for me not to try to prove to anyone else that they need to pat me on the head because no one needs to pat me on the head now. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children your family, and all those you care about while living your own life fully. Today's show is called There is No Perfect Life with our amazing guest, Hank Ryan. Hank is the USA Today bestselling author of 13 psychological thrillers, winning the genre's most prestigious awards, five Agathas, four Anthonys, and the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. She is also an investigative reporter for Boston's WHDH-TV, winning 37, that is 37 Emmys. Book reviewers call her, quote, a master of suspense and superb and gifted storyteller. The First to Lie garnered a publisher's weekly starred review and is nominated for the Anthony Award for her best novel and the Mary Higgins Clark Award. And her latest book, Her Perfect Life, will be released very soon on September 14th, which receives starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and is being called a superlative thriller. I am so excited to interview a master interviewer, Hank. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Hank. Thank you. It's really strange to be on the other side of the microphone, I have to say. I bet. I was um, in reading about you and uh, the most your a most recent article about going undercover. I, I just have to start there of like, how, well, I'll start behind there. Like, how did you become, you've been doing this a long time, before you became an author, how did you become an investigative reporter? Like, what was that process? Oh my golly, it is, that's a great story. Um, and completely interesting in the fact that I can tell you the story prefaced by saying, but don't try this. This mm-hmm. won't work for don't you. Don't try this at home. Yes. Exactly. Because that's one of the things that made it fantastic and special and unique and, and, and interesting is that my path was pretty unique. I um, Long story, but I, I had a series of failures in high school. I was the nerdy, geeky, bookish, unpopular no dates ever kid. Mm. 
all I did was read up in the hayloft of the barn behind our house and watch old movies on TV. And my parents were in despair that I would ever turn out to be anything. So when I went to college, um, I decided that what I was going to do was change the world a little bit. I was going to get out of college and I was going to make a difference. You know, this was the 60s and the 70s. And so I, I, I was going to change the world. So right out of college, I decided that I would go into politics. And I worked for several political campaigns back home in Indiana. Uh, sadly, not one candidate I ever worked for actually won. <laughs> and that is when you, if you listen to the universe, as mm -hmm. I have learned to do, that was the universe saying to me, find another career. <laughs> so here's the point, And I know you're wondering, I went to the biggest radio station in Indianapolis and I said, I'm here to apply for a job as a radio reporter. I want to be a journalist because this is how I can change the world. Mm. And the news director, and this is 1970, you have to remember, said to me, that's great. Where was your last reporting job, your last radio reporting job? And I said, well, no, you know, I've never had a job in radio. And he said, that's OK. You know, television? No. Newspapers? <laughs> no. Magazines? No. And he began to realize, long story short, although it's too late to do that, that I had no experience whatsoever. None. Not in any way. And he finally said to me, you seem like a really nice young woman, and I know I could teach you to be a reporter, but I really don't have time. He said, can you tell me one good reason why I should hire you? And I said, yes, you know, I can, actually. I said, your license is up for renewal at the Federal Communications Commission right now, and you don't have any women working here. And then Whoa. I just smiled. <laughs> wow. And then I just smiled, and the next day I had my first job in broadcasting. So you, you did your research. Well, you know, Dr. Dan, that's right. And I, you know, you have come right to the point of it. I, I had no experience, but I had done my homework. And that is what made the difference in my entire life. I took a chance that, I, you know, and I mm -hmm. opened a door that shouldn't have been open to me, but I did my research and I found my calling from that you know, which is such a moment in time when you think, I'm going to go for this, I'm going to do this. If someone says no, I'll just try again. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that moment, that sort of, I wonder why we forget to be brave, I guess, is what I'm thinking huh. about. Yeah. That, you know, when we're 20 and anything is possible and we can do anything and we'll, you know, I don't really um, encourage people to threaten a potential employer during right, the job right, interview. Right. <laughs> Not the best plan. But I do think that there's a bravery and a courage that we have almost from inexperience and almost from naivete yeah. that um, yeah. allows us to give something a try. So now at my age, I think of that all the time. I think, why don't I just find out? Why don't I just ask about it? Why don't I just try it? And if someone says, again, if someone says no, I say, okay, you know, I'll do it another way. It's just so empowering. And, and I wonder, like what you're describing is like how to make something that was almost unconscious and natural become a conscious process, right? So we talk about, and I'm thinking of neuroscience too. I'm thinking of the un- the 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 not fully developed frontal lobe, which has many of us before age 25, 27 being like, oh yeah, I'll go for it. I'm not, I don't need to think this thing through. And and that, you know, of course has some risk to it. But as you're pointing out, it has a courageousness and bravery to it. And then 
we grow up, we get all of these messages from people about what we can do, what we can't do. We'd start doubting ourselves. But what you're talking about is like, no, 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 no. Like, talk back to that, right? Like, get back to that bravery and that courage and your aspirations and go for it. I mean, what I think we get when we leaven our lives with a little bit of experience, and we don't want to be the impetuous, unthinking 21-year-old who just goes out there and does anything, something that's risky and dangerous without any sort of filter. But I do remember that when I was growing up, and my childhood was complicated, but one of the things that one of the things that really stands out for me is that I would ask my mother a question, and she would say, hmm, why don't you go find out? Why don't you find out the answer? Why don't you ask or look it up or see if you, how you can come up with the answer yourself? Um, she And then she said, and then you come back and tell me what you found. Uh, and she sort of challenged me to use my brain and see what was going to happen. And instead of giving me the answer, she made me go find it. And she knew I was curious and she knew I was smart. And she was encouraging me to use that. And I think, look how much that has served me in my mm -hmm. life as an investigative reporter. Every yeah. one of those 37 Emmys, I, which is so crazy, is a result of questions that I asked. And those questions were empowered by my mom, yeah. who let yeah. me know that I could do that, that I had some sort of agency to ask a question. That it's so important. I like so important that um you see parents, it, it does matter what we do, right? Like it, it it matters what we do and what we tell our kids and how we encourage them. And when we overdo for them or um let them off the hook instead of uh, in the struggle, right? The struggle is so important. Um and I have to just say this out loud because I'm totally distracted. For everyone, um who can't see this beautiful background uh, behind Hank? Not only are her amazing books, but there are real. There are a lot of real Emmys behind her. Those are <laughs> those are really cool. Those are really cool. Like I want to reach out and hold it up. Okay. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Thank yeah. You yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. Um, so on your way to earning these uh, again. So from and courage. So reading that article about some of some of your un, when you started to go undercover. Um, how did that happen? And and I could feel the heart palpitations in some of those uh, instances that you wrote about when you were undercover and getting caught. Yes. I, well, sometimes as a reporter, the only way you can find the answers is by not being yourself, uh, not being Hank Phillippe Ryan, the reporter from Channel 7, but being a person who wants to find out the answer to something. So when I, you know, I, I know this is just, I know this is no pictures. And as you were saying about the Emmys, but I, I take off all my makeup. I put my hair on top of my head. I wear big glasses. I wear three sweatshirts. So I look completely different from the way I look in real life. And I just, when I go undercover to find out whether doctors are giving, uh, are lying to their patients or whether fishmongers are selling fish that isn't the what they're labeled what it's labeled as mm -hmm. or any of those undercover things that I've done um I just become someone else I be really become someone else for that moment and that's the key of going undercover is that you take your own personality and you leave yourself about 10% to be you the reporter and about 90% of you is authentically like uh, like method acting becoming someone else 
to get the information that you want. Um, it's scary because no one wants to go into a situation that it's not illegal, let me hasten to say. It's not illegal to do it, but mm -hmm. it is something that if caught, I was caught, caught once in a cult church, if not, if caught, you, um, the person who catches you is not going to be happy that you're lying to them and sneaking in and trying to mm -hmm. find out things about them that you then want to make public. So, but it's one of those things as a journalist, I mean, we talk about bring, being brave. It's one of those things as a journalist, that's just a necessary part of discovering the truth is mm -hmm. digging a little deeper and it isn't risky physically so much I tell myself yeah but it is um going the extra mile to get the good story and I and I do try to do that when I and I imagine that truth if you stick on the truth and the um protect you know for society changing the world all of these I what I hear are your underlying missions if you focus on those that is what propels you forward and probably overrides in the moment some of that fear that would want you, you know, make us run the other way. Yes. The goals of finding the truth, getting to the bottom of the story, and also honestly, authentically wanting to find out what really is happening. One of the real pitfalls, one of the things that trips up reporters, and I see it and it's so sad, is when you make a decision about how something is and then go out to prove that. And one of the things I try to really remember, not only as a reporter, but in my whole life, is to listen and be open. I mean, one of the things that I learned that I think is one of the most pivotal things that I could ever know and understand is that I could be wrong. I could be wrong about something. And if I am wrong, I want to know that and I want to understand how I how that came to be mm -hmm. and what what someone else might feel and what someone else might think and what someone else might even more importantly, what someone else might know. Mm -hmm. So as a reporter, my curiosity, uh, you know, they, they always say you go, you get the story you're looking for. So I'm not looking for the story. I'm looking for reality. Mm -hmm. And that way I can expand my horizons. I can get the real story. I learn things that I might not have otherwise known. I don't wall off my brain and only take in the things that I want to take in. I try to take in everything. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, I was struck as you wrote about your the trend, the difference between being an investigative reporter and undercover investigative reporter, and then becoming also an author, and how different that is in terms of control of a situation that you now have when you are creating your your fictional works. Yeah, I like to think I'm in control of those fictional works, and <laughs> I have it to a certain to a certain extent, but not totally. I mean, writing a novel is very like doing a television story in a couple of ways in that I, as a television reporter, I have a, a character you care about and a problem that needs to be solved. You want the good guys to win and the bad guys to get what's coming to them. And in the end, you want some justice and you want to change the world a little bit. So that's what I do in investigative re reporting. I also need to be engaging and entertaining. You know, I need to be, it needs to be new. It needs to be intelligent. It needs to be compelling and riveting and well told. I need to learn how to tell a good story. So I started being, I started writing um, fiction when I was 55, hmm. you know, after having many years of being a reporter and learning how to tell a story. So I was able to translate that into writing fiction, but whoa, writing fiction is difficult. It is, 
um, it's enormously difficult. And I do tell, I do teach writing as well. And I tell my students, if it's not difficult, you're not working hard enough. If it's easy for you, you know, you, this isn't as good as you can possibly be. But again, going back to the parent thing, I remember when I was writing my first book and I honestly was so naive about writing that first book that I, I, I came home and I said to my husband, I have a great idea for a novel. I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a book. And my husband says, great, honey. Um, he's so supportive. And he says, yeah. you know how to write a book? And I'm like, how hard can that be? You know, I've read a million of these. Yeah. And, I, and I soon learned how hard it could be. But in the middle of writing my first book, I really realized how hard it could be. And I was very um, depressed. I don't know, depressed, but I was perplexed. Let's put it that mm -hmm. way. I was perplexed because I thought this was going so well. And now I've hit a brick wall. And what am I going to do? And I called my mom, as we do, if we are lucky, I called my mom and I said, um, Mom, you know, I, I, I love this book. It's going to be called Primetime. I love it. It's a really good story. But golly, you know, I, I'm just not sure that I can finish it. And she, she was back home in Indiana and I was in Boston. And she says, there was this pause. And then she says, well, dear, you will if you want to. And I thought, there you have it. You will if you want to. That, yeah. you know, that crystallized everything about it because it made me see that I could sit here and whine and mm -hmm. be upset and gripe about hitting the wall and I could give up. Or if I wanted to, I would just go on. That it was all about my passion and my desire. And if I didn't do it, no one would care. Mm -hmm. No one would care. But if I did do it, if I did accomplish it, if I did complete it, then I would care. And I had done something that I always wanted to do. So I wanted to, mm -hmm. and I did finish it. And that one, that was prime time, the book prime time, which won the Agatha for best first mystery. And that was the beginning of my career. So my mom sort of just yeah. called me out on it. Wise you know, mama, said, wise yes, mama. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. I have to ask, we're going to be, you know, we're going to work our way to a perfect life. And, um, so the idea of perfect and perfectionism is on my mind. And uh, my listeners know that um, I am a self-proclaimed perfectionist in recovery. So I have to, I have to ask you this um, because when you talked about that, you know, those uncomfortable feelings when the book wasn't coming and, you know, maybe a little depression, maybe a little confusion, um, you know, here you are a multiple award-winning journalist who um, has now has a long record of being very successful after several years ago um, not having a good political campaign run, right? You have several <laughs> victories that lined up and you're really good at what you do. Um, and I know work very hard at it. And then, I don't know, I'm just, for those of us who've had that and then all of a sudden we hit a wall, it doesn't come easy. It's a struggle. It, it is, was that, again, this stuff that you had to grapple with with yourself and how you saw the work and pushing through and your own expectations about it? If I can just go back to my parents again, I mean, I yeah. this is just so interesting yeah. to think of it in this, in this template, in this context, is that for better or for worse, and I'm not quite sure which it is, when I was growing up, nothing was ever good enough. It was never enough. If I got an A, it was why not an A+. Plus. You know, if I was second, why weren't you first? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, 
all those kinds of things. And so I spent my life saying, watch me dive, you know, not really diving, but, you know, look at me now, look at me now. And they never would. I never heard my mom say, good job ever. I, and I, all I wanted was for them to tell me that Mm -hmm. all I wanted was for them to say, we're so proud of you. And that, and that rarely came. Mm-hmm. So as I said, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, so now I think I still kind of do that. I'm still sort yeah. of wanting people. I can't believe I'm confessing this to you. But yeah. part of it is I have learned to think, you know what? I, I'll be proud of myself. I don't need someone yeah. else to be proud of me. Right. Um, I'll do the best I can. And my success will be for me, not mm-hmm. to try to prove to anyone else that they need to pat me on the head because no one needs to pat me on the head now. No one needs to pat me on the head now. Now, yeah. if they do, that's great. And I embrace it and I love it. And I am honored by every single Emmy and every single award that I've gotten for writing. But um, I have learned to be proud of myself. I've learned to celebrate. You know, I think that's one of the things that especially mm-hmm. writers don't do. I think in all parts of our lives, we want something and then we get it. And then we think, well, that didn't really matter. That wasn't really the thing I was looking for. The next thing is the thing that I'm looking for. Totally. I want to write a book. Totally. Right? I want to write yes. a book. No, I want to yes. write a bestseller. No, I want to be on right. another bestseller list. I want to write another book. I want to sell more books than that. I want to sell right. more books than the other person. You know, it's this endless raising the bar on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so destructive. Um, now, I'm not, you know, I'm ambitious. I'm a hard worker. I love when you said you're a recovering perfectionist because I'm on the road to perfectionist recovery too, mm-hmm. slowly. Yes, it's a slow but, roll. But I do think that one of the ways that we can all do that a little bit is to learn to celebrate along the way. Yes. Um, very specifically, when I'm writing a book, I it's 100,000 words. Now, it is very difficult to write 100,000 words. It's not as difficult to write 1,000 words. 1,000 words is a doable thing. 500 words, that's a snap compared to 100,000 words. So I set a writing goal every day, a goal that I can achieve. 500 words, sometimes it's 540 words, long calculation, 540 words. And so if I write 540 words a day, I know that I'll finish by my deadline. And every day when I do that, I allow myself to succeed. So instead of saying to myself every day, oh, my golly, I haven't written my book yet. I fail. I think, oh, I wrote my 540 words. I win. I succeed. And that gives me fuel to go on to the next thing, the next task, the next day, the next number of words. So if you take a big job and cut it into doable bits that and allow yourself to succeed, that's the fuel. that's the fuel and instead of instead of berating yourself every day for failure you pat yourself on the back every day for success and everybody responds to that even we can do that for ourselves absolutely and i want to just highlight something you said which is so important is for a variety of different reasons a lot of us are looking for the approval the positive reinforcement of other and that can drive our behavior particularly a lot of folks who lean more towards um achievement orientation and it is a huge whoa awareness if if one can get to the idea of 
you know what? I can't control what other people do. I want to do this for me. I need to, I need to go from within. So I just want to really, you know, capitalize on what you said, Hank, because the sooner we can figure out how to do for us and to, um, affirm ourselves as opposed to look for it from others, the more internal, um, harmony we'll have and less of the, uh, the distress. Um, the other thing that is really important that you mentioned when you, one does have a more perfectionistic, um, ambitious achievement oriented approach, it isn't ever enough as you have pointed out. It's all, there's always something else. Um, Oh, and I wanted to give you a, a note that you will get congrat. You have to get forty Emmys for someone to pat you on the back. It's not thirty-seven. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Very yeah. helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also though love um, your new career started at fifty-five, or your you know this other part of your career started at fifty-five, and and for everyone who thinks like, oh gosh, you know, I went down this road. I've been on this road for so long. I'm just too old to change. That's uh, that's not true, as you uh, you are living proof of that. Oh my golly, I am the poster child for it. It's so crazy, you know. Um, I I started thinking about if I that I for, as a, as a little girl when I was reading Nancy Drew in the Hayloft yep. and Paul yep. Collins in the Hayloft, and I thought, ooh, you know, maybe I should be a mystery writer. And then I thought, no. I think I'd rather be a detective. I'd rather be Sherlock Holmes than write about Sherlock Holmes. But that wanting to be a mystery author was also always burbling under the surface a little bit. So when I got this idea for prime time, when, as you said, when I was 55, I thought, oh, my first thought was, my first thought was, yes, I'm going to write this. I'm going to do this. This is a great idea. I, you know, I know a good story when I hear it as a reporter, and I knew this was a good story, prime time. Um, and then I thought, oh, maybe it's too late. And instantly I thought, are you kidding me? You're 55 years old. You've got half your life to live again. And if you don't do this now, when are you going to do it? Tomorrow? In a year? Don't be silly. Go for it right now. It, it, I'm the poster child for following your dreams in midlife. There is, mm-hmm. there, is, there is so much more time to do what we want. And, and we don't know how much more time there is. So the idea of putting that off, of waiting until, waiting until what? You know, waiting until we are retire, waiting until we have time, waiting until, no, if you, if I am the proof of if you want to do something, your brain is telling you, your subconscious is telling you, the universe is telling you, <clears throat> This is the time to do it. Now is the time to do it. Um, I'm opening the door for you. And there are some people who think, and I and I understand this so completely, that the universe offers us an idea and says, here's something for you. And if we are open enough to take it and accept it and embrace it, it's ours. If not, you know how intent sort of diminishes And if you wait, then it's not so compelling. And if you wait longer, it's even less compelling. And then it fades away. And oh my golly, that brings tears to my eyes because I think of the missed chances. And I also think of the people who are so happy at my age, who have finally decided, you know, to write that book of poetry or even to put together that cookbook that their family always wanted them to do or learn a new language or, you know, help do something big and helpful or write their book or whatever it is that they always wanted to do. Um, You are the only thing that's stopping yourself from doing it. 
Yes. No one else is yes. stopping you from doing it. Yeah. And so, you know, taking your power now at, at my age, you know, I thought I can do whatever I want. I'm experienced. I have a good job. I know stuff. I've been in the world. I know people. I can do this. Why am I not doing this? There's it, it was really a funny moment because I think there's a little child in all of us that says, I'll wait till I'm a grown up. And we do have these stages in our lives. We have graduating from junior high and graduating from high school and graduating from college and getting your first job. So there are these times that sort of seem incrementally marked. But as we grow, get older, um, those markers fade and the markers become less uh, obvious. And so we have to make the markers. And my thought is, well, why not now? Right. How about now for a marker? Um, and, And I don't think that can hurt. There's a theme of bravery that runs through your life and your stories, right, everyone? Bravery, like how to be brave um, and, and that the time is now. Okay, Her Perfect Life. Tell us, tell us about, set this up for us, this story and where it came from. It's a story of a reporter named Lily Atwood. She is in her 30s. She has as an adored and adorable and beloved seven-year-old daughter. She's a single mom. It's complicated. She uh, is such a beloved reporter at the station where she works that her fans have made a hashtag for her, hashtag Perfect Lily, because she's smart and she's attractive and she's brave, and but she has a secret. So the short version of the story is fame, fortune, and her beloved daughter. To keep it, all she has to do is keep one secret because Lily has a big secret. And the point of the story is fame and celebrity makes you vulnerable. The idea that Lily is in everyone's living room every night doing the news makes people feel as if they know her, but they don't. So what happens when the spotlight is the most dangerous place of all? What happens when the spotlight is not only on you, but on your family? How do you protect them? So she's juggling this perfect life that's, that is, she's apparently has this perfect life, a beautiful job, a beautiful daughter, a nanny, everything that she could possibly want. On the other hand, she's hiding a dark secret, um, which is looming and may ruin her life if it comes out. Hmm. Of course, I won't ask you the question we all want to know because you have to go read the book to know what the secret is. So we'll go past that. Good idea. How, how, I know you've been asked this probably several times. How, how, where is the line of fiction versus nonfiction and how much of yourself do you bring to, you know, stories like this that you know these situations so well? Well, it'd be silly for me not to put my experiences in the story. I mean, I've wired myself in hidden cameras and confronted corrupt politicians and chased down criminals and, as you said, gone undercover and in disguise. So, and I've been places that many people haven't been, you know, in the in the underpinnings of the airport and behind the scenes at courts and in prisons. And I've had people confess to murder and convicted murderers insist that they were 
not guilty. And, you know, all those, I've ta- I know what people look like when they lie. I've been in people's houses that people might not have been in ordinarily. So all those kinds of experiences um, go into the book. So nothing that happens to Lily or any of my other characters wouldn't really happen to a reporter. I mean, it's bigger because it's fiction. But, uh, but on the other hand, it's realistic. It's genuinely not only uh, in the plot, but in the emotion. And that's what I'm going for right now. And I, and her perfect life sort of started years ago when I was the weekend anchor in Atlanta. And I came home one night at, you know, midnight ish to find my house surrounded by police cars. Um, and someone had broken into my house and he was caught. And the reason he broke in when he did was that he said that he knew I was live on TV at the station. So I wasn't home. He knew I wasn't home. So because he knew where I was, he knew where I wasn't. And I mean, that is chilling to me. So you think about that, how the vulnerability of people who are on television, you see them doing live shots, places, you know, here I am live at the train station or here I am live at the fire. And what you don't think about is that that's where that person is. Mm -hmm. That's where that person physically is. And that can be dangerous. They're also not on their phone with their daughter at school. She isn't, you know, they're not at home. There, you know, people knew when I left the station and when I arrived at the station and where I parked my car, they could have followed me. I mean, I've been stalked and harassed and threatened and had mean phone calls and people come to my house. I embrace the celebrity-ish, whatever it's called, mm-hmm. part of it. The, the you know that I can go. I when I go to the grocery store here in New England, people know who I am, and that makes me be a certain way. And I'm mm-hmm. aware that I embrace that all, all good because that's the job I chose. Mm-hmm. But that is very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandkids didn't choose to have Grammy be someone that people recognize when they go to the park. You know, they didn't right. pick that. You know, my husband didn't pick that. And so that's what I was trying to weave into the story of her perfect life. Mm-hmm. That obviously it's, in, you know, obviously it's completely ironic. It's a, it's a completely ironic title, Her Perfect Life, because it can't be. And when we try to make it be that, when we struggle and juggle and worry and fear and try to protect ourselves, when we try to juggle and try to keep things in balance and try to protect ourselves and try to make it clear that, oh, indeed, we are perfect. Nothing is wrong. Everything is fine. Like we do on TV, where every single second a light could fall on you or you could lose your script or someone could walk behind you and say something terrible. And we have to look like nothing is ever wrong. You know, how does that translate into real life? And it doesn't translate into real life because Mm -hmm. in real life, we are all vulnerable and we are all human. Um, Some of some people just have jobs where they have to look perfect. And I wanted to I know my publisher keeps saying, oh, this is your most personal book ever. And it kind of is, you know, um, people don't really think about when they're watching TV that this is a real person who has a real life behind that perfect looking facade. And that is what I'm exploring in her perfect life. Did you learn something that you didn't or become aware of something through the process that, you know, you go into it with certain expectations. And then of course you come out when you do something like this, when it comes to this 
the idea of being perfect and the portrayal and any anything come to mind that was like wow something you got from this well i think it was you know i was writing this book during the pandemic um as right as the pandemic began and i know exactly in the book the point where I was writing along and I was happy and I was thinking, Ooh, this is good, good, good. Then the pandemic hit and I just stopped. I just stopped. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I was, you know, I was doing news stories every day. I was terrified every day. Um, I felt that the universe was spinning out of control every day. And then I thought, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, I can't control this. I can only do the best I can. And my and I promise I'll get to your answer because it's sort of a it's sort of a process. My first reaction to the pandemic was to try to control it. You know, that's what I do as a reporter. I try to control the situation, be open, be curious. But, you know, I'm not going to put myself at risk. I have to be finished at a certain time. You know, there's deadlines, there are places to go, people to see, people to meet, you know, things to do. I'm in control. I'm in charge. I have a schedule. I got this. But suddenly the pandemic hit. And nothing was like that anymore. And I tried to take control by, I don't know, buying a lot of aluminum foil. I don't know. I, everybody did what they had to do and tuna fish. And then I thought, I, I don't have any control over this. this. There's nothing I can really do about this is, except for try to keep myself and my husband safe. And I will do that. And it made the perfection element that I had struggled with so much um, seem a little less important, seem a little first world, seem a little unnecessary. You know, I spent a lot of time, my husband and I spent a lot of time feeling, I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but feeling lucky. You know, he's a lawyer, I'm a writer, we can work at home, we have a yard, where we can keep ourselves safe, and so many people couldn't. And that's, you know, that became a new perfection, just this basic, basic human needs and love uh, and safety became the new perfection. So, um, and it's also interesting to go places in a mask because now nobody knows who I am. Yeah. And that's a really different experience too. Mm -hmm. That's an experience that I haven't had in a long time. So I'm learning a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm learning a lot through this. I'll be happier as we all will when this is over, knock on wood. But I do, you know, if you have to have a learning experience out of something horrific, um, I have learned a lot from this yeah Um, i think we all went through the phase of i'm going to make a beautiful dinner and then take a picture of it and put it on instagram and then everybody will know that i'm okay and everybody was doing that and now you know i think you sort of see the sense of that diminishing a little bit where we all try to figure out how we're really going to live our lives and i think a lot of that has changed i mean i can confess to you that i look at my closet and i think ooh, all those shoes why did i really need yeah. All those shoes. Yeah. So um, yeah. that's made a big difference to me. Well, and, and, <laughs> and, isn't, and isn't there some relief for those of us who have a more perfectionistic way of thinking and a relief when they're, you know, even something like a pandemic, which none of us want, um, it helps change our, our perspective. Like you said, like this gratitude or like, I don't need to think or be like this or, you know, how does this serve me? And then when we, when we ask ourselves that in the context of tragedy, in the context of um, a pandemic, we then start to think about, do I need this moving forward after this 
whole thing is over, right? It, it like allows an opportunity to be different. Oh my goodness. I mean, absolutely. And my husband and I planted tomato plants and we walked down to the tomato patch every day and pick the little ripe tomatoes now. And we stay up late and watch the Perseid meteor shower. And, you know, we see how blue the sky is. And I want to make clear that I am working harder than I've ever worked. You know, I'm still writing a book and I'm writing a short story and I'm doing all kinds of things. And I, you know, work seven days a week and I'm, I'm not doing less. I just feel different mm-hmm. about it. Nice. And I do think that um, there are lessons that we'll take from this um, about compassion and about love and about gratitude Yes, um, that I hope we don't lose. Yes, yes. Well, Hank, it's time for the parent footprint moment question, which I think you will have many to draw upon. Okay, so here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, an awareness of your parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your kids, and those you love. Oh, you know, it's so interesting, and you really make me think about this, because there are really a couple of times when you realize how much it matters what your parents say at certain times of your life. Um, I remember as a little kid, I was really bad at everything physical, you know, whether it was sports or ballet or even walking through a door without hitting my shoulder on the door jam. And my mother used to say all the time, you're so awkward. You're so klutzy. You're so clunky. You know, you're so you're just not athletic. And I really began to believe that I, I, I and it turned out that I just needed glasses. I just couldn't see. And so but even when I got glasses and I thought, oh, look, the trees have leaves. Amazing. Um, that feeling that I was awkward uh, and not good at sports and that kind of thing really stuck with me because she said it and she was just, she wasn't, she wasn't meaning to hurt me. She was just reacting in a way that imprinted on me and gave me a vision of who I was that was wrong. And I, and I, and the, but on the opposite end of it, when I was older Um, when I turned out, when I was thinking about myself at my, at the age my mom was when she said that, Mm -hmm. when I grew up, I thought, oh, she had no idea what she was doing. How was she supposed to know? I was her first child. She was experimenting on me. She had no idea who had taught her to be a mother. You know, there are so many things that our parents say to us because they're young and they don't know. Um, and I don't think she had learned to be careful about that yet. And she didn't, you know, she didn't mean mm-hmm. to hurt me, mm-hmm. but, and you can see that she helped me in other ways, yeah. but I do think every time I still hit my shoulder on a door jam now, and I say to myself, Oh, Hank, you're so klutzy. And yeah. I think, no, 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 you know, no, yeah. that's, that's wrong. And when I say to myself, sometimes walking down the street, I'll say, Oh, you're so stupid. You forgot to do X, Y, and Z. I remind myself, no, I'm not stupid. I just forgot that. Yeah, and so yeah. that really made me, that really made me be aware of criticizing myself. Mm-hmm. How? Why are we? Why are we doing that? Why are we yeah. criticizing ourselves? It's okay to forget something. That's yeah. just fine. Yeah. And, and two more quickly. One was when I when I was older and working in Washington D.C. 
and I worked on Capitol Hill for a while as, in a, as a legislative aide on the Administrative Practice and Procedures Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Wow. And I was, you know, I was 23 or something like that. And I had dinner with my father, my biological father, um, one night in Washington, D.C. My parents were separated, divorced when I was six. So, but I was still mm-hmm. friends with my dad. So all these years later, and we're sitting having dinner and I said, um, Dad, you know, I love my job on Capitol Hill, but wow, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. I have no idea. I said, I go in there every day and I'm just making it up. You know, mm-hmm. and I just really wonder how long I can get away with just I'm doing the best I can, but I'm just making it up. And my dad, who was a diplomat in the Foreign Service, said, um, oh, sweetheart, that's what everybody's doing. <laughs> and I said, what? No, no, they know what they're doing. I'm the only one. And he said, no, honey, everybody's just making it up as they go. And everybody's doing the best they can. And that was such a revelation, mm-hmm. you know, to think, oh, I'm not the only one who's out there yeah. uh, being fearful and being afraid and trying my best. Everybody is. And I went I went back to work with a completely different attitude, you know, much more compassionate, you know, much more uh, patient. And much less fearful because I thought, you know, I'm just like everybody else. And that is a good thing. And my final thing, you know, I'm thinking about um, I had two step grandkids, one of whom is 11 ish now. He's completely adorable. And to them, I'm Grammy. And I just love that. I love that to them. I'm not Hank who's Grammy, but just Grammy only. Mm -hmm. That's my role. And they live in Brooklyn and I live in, in Boston. Um, and the, the younger one was staying with us for the weekend and we had two kinds of cereal and I'm making this up, but let's just say it's checks and cocoa puffs. And his brother ate the last of the cocoa puffs. Uh Oh, so the younger kid, the younger boy says, Oh, Grammy, I wanted cocoa puffs. And I said, yeah, we're out of cocoa puffs. And he says, well, I want cocoa puffs. Can you go to the store and get cocoa puffs? And I said, nope, buddy, life is hard. You get checks. And he he says, okay. (laughs) And it was just that I didn't engage with him in this whining, in this, uh, oh, uh, you know, I I, I wondered whether a good Grammy would have gone to the store and gotten Cocoa Puffs. But I said, nope, life is hard. And he Mm -hmm. completely, he was fine with it. He was totally fine with it. And I really think, I really think he learned from that. Yeah. Oh, it made me just think of something else. Can yeah, I tell you one yeah, more? Yeah, of course. You're on a um, roll. My, the, old, the older boy, the older boy, also brilliant, absolutely adorable, completely great. They both turned, are turning out to be wonderful, was griping because everybody else wanted to do something, but he didn't want to do it. And why did he have to do it? Why couldn't he just do what he wanted to do? So that, that episode went by. And later he was taught watching basketball and he was talking about uh, a player who he called a ball hog, that this mm-hmm. player always wanted the ball and he would never pass it to anyone else. And he always wanted to do what he wanted to do and how awful that was. So I said, you know, yeah, isn't that true? And he said, yeah, you know, he's not even a team player. And I said, huh, you know, remember that time earlier today when everybody wanted to do something and then you didn't want to, and you wanted to do what you wanted to do. And we were on the team, but you wanted to do what you wanted to do. Is that kind of the same? And he just looked at me and this, his expression changed. And he said, yeah, Grammy, I guess it is. And I said, okay. 
And that was the end of that discussion. You know, I wasn't going to go on about it. Yeah, but I nice. really think that he may have thought of his worlds in a different way after that. Yeah. Nice connection. Look at all these awarenesses. So many awarenesses. Um, Hank, thanks so much for sharing um, yourself with us. And it's, um, you know, you've accomplished so much. And I know how much the inner growth and what you're continuing to grow and accomplish in your own personal life, how important that is and how you're prioritizing it. And um, that's just, that's just awesome. I mean, that you're right, that the level of insight, the level of awareness, the level of like, you're never done growing. That's the inspiration for everyone listening, that um, to be brave, it's never too late to reflect on where we've been and to keep moving forward with what's important to you. Well, I'm very honored to have been with you today. Thank you so much. You do a wonderful service and your show is absolutely terrific and meaningful. Thank you for including me. Thank you. So tell everyone where they can find, of course, your book's just coming out. Um, tell everyone where they can find all of your works, um, TV, journalist, uh, write everything. Oh my golly, my, my new book, Her Perfect Life, comes out September 14th with starred reviews from Kirkus and from Publishers Weekly. So we are all cheering. That is great and quite a triumph. Um, you can find me at hankphilippyryan.com, cleverly named my website after myself. You can do it under any spelling, P-H-I, because uh, we decided to get every spelling of Philippi so you couldn't not, so you couldn't not find me. HankPhilippyRyan.com on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, Hank P. Ryan. I'm easy to find. Just Google me and I cannot wait to hear from you. If you click on contact on my website, that comes directly to me, no middle person. And I love to hear from readers. So eager to hear what you think about her perfect life um, and so eager to share it with you. Best of luck on this launch. Um, I think we all know where this book is going, like all of the others, and we'll look, but there's more to come because we know you're not done. All right, everyone, this concludes another meaningful conversation. And if you want more of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, check out our bonus episodes once a month exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To listen, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash Dr. Dan, click start free trial, select a monthly plan and sign up with the code Dr. Dan, and you'll get a month of free listening. You know what I'm going to ask you to do? to work on being the person you want your child and your loved ones to become. Tell everyone about this show. Share it with anyone who you think will benefit. Be a part of our community. We'd love to have you. And as always, I leave you with the guiding question I ask myself every day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.